Thanks for tuning in to the Preacher Girl Podcast. I'm Diane Wright, and today's episode is The View from the Tree, Perspectives on Love and Forgiveness. This talk was originally shared on April 26, 2009, at St. John's Unitarian Church in Cincinnati. There are two readings. Dan Millman, in No Ordinary Moments, shares the story of a man who was rowing a small boat upstream, heading toward home, when he felt another small boat, heading downstream, collide with his boat. Since he had the right of way, he felt angry. Turning, he yelled at the other boatman, Watch where you're going, be more careful. And the other man apologized and passed by without further incident. But an hour later, as the man continued upstream, he felt another boat collide with his. Furious, he turned to yell at the reckless person. His anger vanished when he saw that the boat was empty. It must have come loose from its moorings. Calmly, he pushed it aside and continued on his journey. He never lost his temper again, because from then on he treated everyone like an empty boat. The second reading is from Madeline Langle. She shares the story of a Hasidic rabbi renowned for his piety. He was unexpectedly confronted one day by one of his devoted youthful disciples. In a burst of feeling, the young disciple exclaimed, My master, I love you. The ancient teacher looked up from his books and asked his fervent disciple, Do you know what hurts me, my son? The young man was puzzled. Composing himself, he stuttered, I don't understand your question, Rabbi. I'm trying to tell you how much you mean to me, and you confuse me with irrelevant questions. My question is neither confusing nor irrelevant, rejoined the rabbi. For if you do not know what hurts me, how can you truly love me? The View from the Tree, Perspectives on Love and Forgiveness The name I chose for today's talk comes from a story told to me by a man who has been a colleague of mine for 20 years. We had always enjoyed the times we saw each other, so a couple of years ago, we decided to arrange a lunch together at least once a quarter. And it was during those lunches that we started asking each other those basic questions. The things we're shocked to find we don't know about someone after years. Where were you born? Where were you raised? My colleague came to the United States from the Democratic Republic of Congo many years ago, and he plans to return after his youngest child finishes college. This year, as the violence in Congo escalated, I would ask at each of our lunches about his extended family in Congo. Finally, one quarter, he said he was very concerned because the violence was worse than it had been when he was a boy. It was violent when you were a boy, I asked, ignorant American that I am. And my friend became quiet for a moment, and he looked at me, and he said, I've never told you the story of my village. You know someone 20 years, and it's surprising when they don't know important basic things. My friend had been a young boy when soldiers had gone through the village 
telling everyone to come to the village square for an important meeting. The children had been excited at the prospect of something happening out of the daily routine, and he and his cousins and best friends ran to get a good spot. He was small, so he climbed a tree to get a better view. Once a large number of people had gathered, the soldiers came, and on a signal from their leader, they pulled out their automatic weapons and began shooting, mowing down the entire crowd. They didn't see my friend in the tree. He stayed as still as he could and watched as his cousins and his best friends were killed. I cannot describe to you the look in my friend's eyes as he told me this story. Last week, I had a chance to travel again to Oklahoma City. Every time I travel there for work, I have an opportunity to talk to local mental health professionals, and I always make a point to ask them about their experience during the bombing of the Murrah building. The look in their eyes as they tell me their stories is the same. Over our lunch, I watched as my friend looked away and wiped his eyes and smiled his way back into the moment, and then I asked him, my friend who has earned his doctorate, raised a family, enjoyed success here in the States, how did he move on from that? He told me he did not blame the soldiers. He said he has forgiven them. He understood they were following orders. He understood they were part of a much larger chaos and disorder in his country. And he told me that's why he plans to return. He fully expects to take on a leadership role in his country when he goes back. And he fully expects there will be people trying to kill him. The last time he visited his extended family in Congo, he was put on house arrest and almost didn't make it out of the country. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, If you want to see the brave, look at those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look at those who can love in return for hatred. My friend inspires me. This morning, I'm going to talk about forgiveness. Beyond the story of my friend, I want to let you know about some projects that I find inspiring as well. And my hope for all of us is that as we hear about new perspectives on forgiveness, as we hear examples of forgiveness in action, we can carry away new tools for ourselves and for those we love in hopes that we all might find more of the kind of peace that forgiveness brings. A couple of weeks ago, some of you may have heard the NPR interview with Bruce Weber, whose book about baseball umpires and the training they go through has just been published. In that interview, he was asked about the situations we sometimes see out on the field when an umpire is faced with an angry coach or manager. And Mr. Weber said that he was surprised to find that in umpire school, the training for that situation is not how to respond, but how to make the situation end. It reminded me of Dan Millman's quote, The umpire training acknowledges that the person coming at you across the field has become unmoored. The umpire is trained to stand, to listen, to stand further away from the tobacco chewers, 
and then say, finished yet? Like pushing the boat out of the way. If it becomes personal, if there is physical contact or if the shouting and swearing starts to include the word you, then the manager is ejected. The whole situation preempts forgiveness because the umpire is trained to see the transgression as something not directed at him. It is something he is trained to address as an interruption of the larger game. Most of us haven't been trained as umpires, and in most cases, those who have injured us have done so directly. And it's a different matter to eject someone from our game, from our life. A couple of years ago, doing a Google Google search, I came across the Fetzer Institute's website for the Campaign for Love and Forgiveness. At first glance, and maybe this is something like your first reaction when you saw the title of this talk, it seems a little cheesy, maybe a little too hallmark. But I got pulled in, and it didn't take me long to be bowled over by what I found. For those of you online, just Google Love and Forgive, and you'll get there. The Campaign for Love and Forgiveness is an international effort. It includes two PBS documentaries, several curricula, and projects being implemented in parts of the world like Northern Ireland, South Africa, and Israel and Gaza. I love many parts of the website, but what is most powerful about it for me is the way it acknowledges that reconciliation between nations, between tribes, between families, all rests on a foundation of individual hearts that have turned in a way to support the structure of that bridge. Forgiveness happens heart by heart and mind by mind. It is not something ordained with the stroke of a pen or the swoop of a wand. The website includes work by Fred Luskin on the nine steps of forgiveness. It's a structured pathway for those who have been wronged or harmed, but wish to begin moving beyond the pain of that situation into a new, more peaceful experience. It is a way to move beyond resentment and bitterness. For, as Anne Lamott says, Being bitter and resentful is like swallowing the rat poison yourself and then waiting for the rat to die. Here are Fred Luskin's nine steps. One, know exactly how you feel about what happened and be able to articulate what about the situation is not okay. Then tell a trusted couple of people about your experience. Two, Make a commitment to yourself to do what you have to do to feel better. Forgiveness is for you and not for anyone else. Three, understand that forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation with the person that hurts you or condoning of their action. What you are after is to find peace. Forgiveness can be defined as the peace and understanding that come from blaming that which has hurt you less, taking the life experience less personally, and changing your grievance story. Four, get the right perspective on what is happening. Recognize that your primary distress is coming from the hurt feelings, thoughts, and physical upset you are suffering now, 
not what offended you or hurt you two minutes or ten years ago. Forgiveness helps to heal those hurt feelings. Five, at the moment you feel upset, practice a simple stress management technique to soothe your body's fight-or-flight response. Six, give up expecting things from other people or your life that they do not choose to give you. Recognize the unenforceable rules you have for your health or how you or other people must behave. Remind yourself that you can hope for health, love, peace, and prosperity and work hard to get them. 7. Put your energy into looking for another way to get your positive goals met than through the experience that has hurt you. Instead of mentally replaying your hurt, seek out new ways to get what you want. 8. Remember that a life well lived is your best revenge. Instead of focusing on your wounded feelings and thereby giving the person who caused you pain power over you, learn to look for the love, beauty, and kindness around you. Forgiveness is about personal power. And finally, nine, amend your grievance story to remind you of the heroic choice to forgive. In his new book, Beyond Revenge, The Evolution of the Forgiveness Instinct, Michael McCullough describes a very tangible reconciliation ritual practiced by the Acholi people of Uganda. In the Acholi community, rebel soldiers have spent several years attempting to overthrow the government. In trying to do so, they've kidnapped preteen girls from villages to be given to soldiers as child brides. They've kidnapped boys from the villages and brainwashed them and forced them to fight as child soldiers. They have maimed those who resisted them, cutting off noses, ears, and lips. But the Acholi community, weary from fighting, decided there was still value in their relationships with these people who had left to fight. And so many communities have attempted to grant full amnesty to soldiers who will return and surrender their weapons. In this case, the soldiers themselves must also decide to seek reconciliation. And this makes it different from the many, many situations where we have experienced injury from someone who may no longer be in our lives, or who may not wish to reconcile, or who doesn't even realize they caused us pain or sadness. But for the Acholi, the reconciliation ceremony consists of this. The returning soldier puts his foot into a raw egg, a symbol of innocence and a new life. Then he steps over the long handle of a farming tool, showing his intent to return to a productive life in the community. Then he brushes against the leaves of a pobo tree, whose slippery bark catches dirty things, according to the Acholi. Then he sits down with community leaders to make plans to confess his sins and compensate the families he has harmed. When I read about the Acholi, I thought about my experiences working with our clients who are returning to the community from prison. I work at a large community mental health agency. For some state prisoners with mental illness, 
there is a pre-planning process that helps them link to community services, and they are receiving assistance as they come back into the community. But for many, there is just a bus ticket, whatever cash they had on their way in, and two feet stepping down onto the concrete at the Greyhound bus station at midnight, all by themselves. I couldn't help but imagine what it might be like to take a former prisoner to the middle of the city, surround him with a community that is committed to having him return, and to have him go through that ritual. I imagine people giggling a little as the egg smashes under his foot, but as I see that image, I hear someone saying, this egg symbolizes innocence and your new life. Imagine that step over the long handle of a tool or maybe around a computer and someone saying, with this step, you commit to a return to your productive life within our community. Imagine the feel of leaves against your skin as someone says, these leaves will catch up the darkness from you. Imagine the meeting with city leaders to plan for compensation. The dignity of that ceremony helps me understand why it may be easier for a returning Acholi soldier to ask for forgiveness than it may be for some of our returning felons. It's an easy criticism of our culture today to say that no one seems to want to take responsibility for their actions. We all suffer from our inability to see how we create our own reality. It was interesting to me this year when one of our anger management groups, which had low attendance, suddenly became one of our most popular groups when it was renamed Dealing with Stupid People. Maybe it would be an easier thing for all of us to acknowledge our responsibility if there were clearer rituals of forgiveness. McCullough points out in his book that all of us have the propensity for revenge and the ability to forgive, but they each have very different outcomes. He believes if we change our cultural environment to be one that encourages and allows forgiveness, it will happen more naturally. It would be worth it to pursue such an environment. The practice of forgiveness has been shown to reduce anger, hurt, depression, and stress, and leads to greater feelings of hope, peace, compassion, and self-confidence. Practicing forgiveness leads to healthy relationships as well as physical health. It also influences our attitude, which opens the heart to kindness, beauty, and love. Preschoolers across all cultures use the same strategies for reconciliation, although different cultures use these strategies in different amounts. They explicitly apologize, they invite each other to resume playing, they share the objects or goodies they were fighting over, they hug each other, and they hold hands. In Japan, for example, the preschoolers focus mostly on explicit apologies, and in Sweden, they invite each other to resume playing, but the result is the same. They are able to move forward together. So, two questions. Is there someone you have not forgiven? Is there someone who has not forgiven you? Think of those you love. Do you know what hurts them? 
There are times when love pours forth from us in response to the joy inspired by someone we love. And there are other times, times when we may be more conscious of love as a choice, as a conscious labor of the mind and heart. When love means reaching out toward someone even when it may be not our initial impulse to do so. Where in your life are you called to love beyond that easy impulse, to coach your heart and your good works towards someone? Fred Luskin asks us in those nine steps, are we ready to give up expecting things from other people that they do not choose to give you? Sometime today, I hope you will take a moment to try that first step know exactly how you feel about what happened and be able to articulate what about that situation is not okay. Then tell a couple of trusted people about your experience. Make a commitment to yourself to do what you have to do to feel better. It's easier said than done. Think about your own heart and mind. What must happen for you to be ready to grant forgiveness? for you to be ready to ask for it yourself. There were many years between my friend's silent horror in the tree and his easy description to me of his forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a simple, easy one-liner. I think it's more of a motion, a turning of our ship in another direction. Maybe preschoolers can teach us something. Could it be easier for them because their ship is a smaller boat to turn? Think of someone with whom you have had a conflict, someone you would still like to have in your life. What will it take to move ahead in peace with them? Could you approach them and say, I have this egg and I'd like to invite you to step on it, or I'd like to step on it in front of you. It's a conversation starter. Knowing that our propensity for revenge and our ability to forgive are both innate, let us live our lives in a way that cultivates forgiveness and weeds out revenge. When we ourselves, or those we love, have become unmoored, have stepped down off the bus alone, or have climbed down from the tree, may we respond with compassion. The closing words are from St. Francis of Assisi. Where hate rules, let us bring love. Where sorrow, joy. Let us strive more to comfort others than to be comforted, to understand others more than to be understood, to love others more than to be loved. For it is in giving that we receive, and in pardoning that we are pardoned. Thanks for tuning in to the Preacher Girl podcast. The music in this episode appears courtesy of singer-songwriter Stephen Grant Smith, who is also the program's sound engineer. You can find more of his music on Amazon.com. This is Diane Wright. As always, feed your spirit, live in love.